This is the Books Podcast, presented by Tim Haig. You could walk from Paris to London without getting your feet wet. There's ways for how to do literary introduction successfully in the UK. It's powerful, it's light, it's graceful, and it's also got a mouthful of teeth like a great white shark. Now then, I suppose we all have a picture in our mind's eye of prehistoric megafauna striding across the home counties in the Pleistocene age, and the more observant among us have noticed that the woolly mammoths and sabre-toothed cats are no longer there. Chief among the more observant among us is Ross Barnett, who joins us now by Skype to talk about his utterly delightful new book, The Missing Links, The Past and Future of Britain's Lost Mammals. Ross, thank you for joining us. Hello, great to be here. I've uh, mentioned the Pleistocene, so if you don't mind, would you explain what that is? Absolutely. So the, the idea of the Pleistocene is just really a, a kind of more technical term for the Ice Age. So it's the period between about 2 million years ago uh, and about 11,700 years ago. And it's a time period where a lot of really interesting things happen. So it's a time period in which our own species, Homo sapiens, um, evolve. And also, more importantly, it's the time period that they spread out, out of Africa, um, multiple times, uh, but also the kind of uh, ultimate uh, diaspora, which leads to us living in Europe, in North America, in Australia, uh, and all over the globe, essentially. Can you describe uh, what the world would have looked like? Because you, you said that there's a sort of a, an, a, an African scene all across uh, the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, what would it have looked like in, in, the, in those times? Well, the, the, the Pleistocene itself is a really quite a fantastically dynamic time period. So you have a lot of oscillation between uh, kind of global climate that is quite frigid, quite cold, ice age-like essentially. Uh, and during those time periods, you have massive amounts of ice locked up in glaciers covering, for instance, the whole of northern uh, Britain, the whole of no- northern North America, um, you know, parts of uh, the Alps, the Pyrenees, massive kind of ice sheets essentially. Uh, and all that water locked up in the ice also had the effect of lowering sea levels. So places like the Bering Strait was actually one continuous uh, grassy landmass. The the North Sea didn't exist, so you could walk from Paris to London without getting your feet wet. Um, so yeah, there's an awful lot going on. And you've got sort of uh, you call it a mammoth step. So it's like the steps of Russia, but all across these uh, continents. The the idea is that um, this is quite a productive ecosystem during that time period that you had. Very different from what there is now uh, when you kind of look at places like um, Siberia and Alaska and the Yukon. You had kind of quite productive grasslands. Uh, you had a lot of kind of forbs and sedges, kind of quite nutritious forage. Um, and it was a very kind of um, intimate cycle with the, the animals that were living there. So you had like mammoths and woolly rhinos returning things up, kind of recycling nutrients with all their dung, uh, eating these kind of nutritious um, forage that they were getting uh, and really kind of intimately affecting the environment that they were living in. Well, they were doing that then. They're not now. So uh, at the end of the Pleistocene era, we've, we've got uh, the, the sixth mass extinction of species. Um, and, well, there are various possible reasons for that. It has been suggested uh, disease or environmental changes. Y- you think there's a rather compelling circumstantial evidence for, for a third explanation? Absolutely. I mean, there, there's been a lot of discussion, a lot of ink spilled about what happened. Um, why, why do we not have mammoths around anymore? Why do we not have uh, giant sloths around? Uh, and there are kind of competing explanations, the idea of that climate change ha- had a big effect and, and certainly, I don't think I wouldn't argue that it didn't have 
an effect. Just I don't think it was the, the ultimate cause of their extinction. And um, the idea of hyper disease, uh, this one put forward by uh, a researcher called Ross McPhee, the idea that kind of disease is swept through these populations, jumping from species to species and causing um, extinctions. But I, I think really the the, the, the one that um, convinces me the most, and hopefully I, I put forward some of the arguments in the book, is the idea that it's actually humans. Humans, as they spread out of their kind of homeland in, in, uh, in Africa, they're technologically advanced. They're the same species as us, Homo sapiens sapiens. They have a fantastic technological um, culture that they take with them. They, they are incredibly adept at producing um, weapons, at producing, um, you know, uh, kind of game plans essentially of how to hunt these animals uh, and these animals were naive they, they they had never encountered most of them um bipeds with spears bipeds with the ability to hunt them and, and so they, they kind of really suffered um as humans expanded outwards they, they didn't really stand a chance and humans just ate these things to death partly i mean i, I, I think it, it's probably a bit more complicated than that, than that. They, they have obviously they're, they're hunting things like mammoths we have the evidence of that quite clearly in, uh, from some sites. They're hunting other kind of large herbivores, things that they would have been familiar with. I mean, elephant-like animals that they would have been familiar with from, from uh, their, their kind of evolving in Africa. Um, but it, also things like land use changes as well. Uh, so, you know, burning forests down, cutting trees, um, th- just multiple pressures that would have been put in place on these animals that would never have experienced them before. Um, and it wouldn't have taken very much for them to, to kind of tip into extinction well i I rather pointedly said that this is the sixth mass extinction and i have cribbed from your book (laughs) the the (laughs) details of the first five um well you've got you know uh uh, well 66 million years ago uh, the fifth was the uh, all the dinosaurs go 50 percent of species are lost um in the third it's like 96 percent of the world species are lost 250 million years ago um so Although you can put this one down perhaps to human activity, um, does it matter? Isn't this what happens from time to time? Well, I mean, yes, that, that's true. Absolutely. You know, extinction is a part of, as much a part of, um, of life on Earth as, as the, the kind of speciation, the, the creation of new species. Uh, I think the, the crucial question is, it doesn't matter particularly to the planet. The planet will always go on. But I think it matters particularly to us as a species. I mean, uh, we're we're so we're part of the the ecosystem. We're intimately connected with with uh, how the how the earth functions, and so there's only so much can be pruned away before the entire kind of bow that we're sitting on will start to collapse. Um, and so, if we want to continue uh, living uh, as a species on, on this planet, we we definitely have to take into account the 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 massive negative effects that we're having. This book is nominally about uh, lost British megafauna, uh, but you range across the whole world as well, and there are some wonderful images that you present us with. But again, let's let me uh, get da- down to terms. Uh, what we mean by megafauna, and you also use the term mega mammals. Mm-hmm. What size are we talking about? Uh, well, it, it depends who who you speak to. For some of it, I, I think the kind of general term for for uh, megafauna is uh, any species whose average sort of volume or average sorry weight is greater than about 44 kilos which i think is about 100 pounds in old money so i mean that that, <laughs> that includes us essentially includes things like neanderthals it includes in australia some of the bigger marsupials um things like the gray kangaroo they're classed as megafauna um and anything that's kind of bigger than than that and mega mammals um is kind of a, a slightly different 
subset of the megafauna. So in the book, I've, I've said that that's uh, species where on average their their weight is greater than a thousand kilos. So this is thing. So that's a, a biggish animal you've got there. Yeah. Uh, you have you have some marvelous uh, examples. Uh, you mentioned Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, in these days, there were eight foot kangaroos and two ton wombats. Yeah, that's an amazing thing to think about. <laughs> and then in, in other places, you've got a sloth the size of an elephant somewhere. Yeah, yeah, in South America. These are amazing. Uh, part of the appeal, surely, of, of of these things is the sheer size. Absolutely. I mean, th- this is this is it. I mean, it, it's what I've tried to do with with the book is kind of bring these these animals to a kind of wider audience. And you know, I've been obsessed with them for kind of nearly twenty years now, just because they're so incredible. And I, I'm I'm clearly not the first, and I hope I'm not going to be the last person to be uh, obsessed with them. I mean, Alfred Russell Wallace, the the co-discoverer of, of uh, evolution by natural selection, he said that they were the kind of largest, weirdest, and strangest animals, the, the, the extinct megafauna. So he, he kind of had the same kind of ideas about them. And, um, you know, things like the, the eight-foot kangaroo from Australia, Prokoptodon goliath. I mean, it, it's almost impossible to imagine what that would look like, um, let alone, you know, a kind of giraffe-sized uh, giant sloth with, you know, two-foot-long claws on its four feet that, um, that walked on the outside of its heels because that's how its feet worked uh, you know th- these are kind of crazy crazy species uh and it's a real i feel it personally that it's a real shame that the, they're not around to be seen anymore we only have their bones and uh if we're lucky kind of cave art to to tell us what some of them looked like um i want you to tell me uh one of the specific stories that you, you tell in the book because it absolutely caught my imagination uh, and that's tell me about stella's sea cow that was an amazing animal and of course you you have a, a significant point to make about it. Absolutely. So I mean, stellar sea cow uh, is really kind of one of the, the the kind of saddest stories you'll ever hear, I think, in natural history. So um, it lived around two islands just off the kind of Kamchatka coast, so far eastern Siberia, uh, Bering Island and Commander Island. And what happened was uh, Bering, who was a, a kind of Russian explorer sent by the the uh, Russian government to explore the far eastern realms of the Russian Empire. Uh, he got shipwrecked on these islands with the ship's naturalist, a guy called Georg Steller. Uh, and so while they were shipwrecked there, they were kind of really in serious difficulty. They they were on these frozen islands in the middle of the, the kind of northern uh, Pacific Ocean. No idea how to get back. People were dying of scurvy. It was, it was really bad times. Uh, but fortunately or unfortunately, um, the, these two islands had the last remnants of what had been once a quite wide-ranging uh, species, this, the what we now know as the stellar sea cow. And these were mega mammals. These were, you know, multi-ton um, sea cows, essentially. They're, they're kind of peaceful, like dugongs and manatees. They, they lived on uh, sea grasses around the coast of these islands. Before, in the Pleistocene, they'd, they'd kind of ranged all around the Pacific Rim from Japan through to California. But these were the, the kind of last populations there. And unfortunately, they, they were they were naive, so they they'd never encountered humans before. Um, they were uh, large. They they were also, according to Stellar in his accounts, incredibly tasty. And these essentially <laughs> saved. That's always the problem. <laughs> they they saved um, the 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 crew that had survived the shipwreck on on these islands, uh, and they could basically just wade out to them with their boats, stick them with a a, a kind of hook, drag them on shore, uh, and uh, carve them up. And you know, there, there's amazing kind of accounts from from Stellar's diary about how the the the, the blubber from these animals tasted like almondy and buttery, 
and uh, and delicious, and how they, they they would get so much meat from them. And you know, he would even kind of milk the the nursing uh, female animals to to drink the milk from them as well. They were kind of a one stop shop, um, and they they kind of led the crew to survive the really harsh winters there. And after they survived eating on uh, sea cows, they were able to return back to to Russia. And unfortunately, Steller, who was a trained naturalist on the expedition, he uh, wrote up the, the the notes from from his time there, which circulated quite widely. And what happened was that um, people realized that out there were amazing resources. There were lots of uh, seals, uh, Arctic foxes, uh, otters, sea otters. So it was a, a fantastic uh, fur trapping opportunity. And basically, people went out there to to hunt the furs, and then while they were out there, they ate the sea cows as well. And so. Between Steller's first description and when we, we know uh, the last recorded individual was, was found is like less than 30 years. So they were known for less than 30 years before being eaten into extinction. And th- this happened in the, the second half of the, the 18th century. So that's that's the statistic, the statistic that really blew my mind, yeah. that within within a generation we'd yeah. managed to, to eat an entire species to extinction and and that naivety is 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 fairly typical isn't it the, all these animals are are things that are not familiar with uh, what what happens when people turn up yeah it's i mean there's very few places where where naive uh species still exist i mean places like um maybe the galapagos where you have the giant tortoises uh, and some of the birds aren't which were parts. also delicious yes i know <laughs> it's, it's lucky it wasn't discovered sooner i think um Antarctica as well, the penguins are, are kind of quite happy to just ignore humans. But, I mean, we're, we're so used to the kind of typical uh, animal response of them kind of fleeing at, our, at the first sight of a human. Um, but we, it's, it's quite difficult to get the head around that that's a, a kind of evolved response, that they know that they shouldn't hang around us because all of their, their kind of bigger, larger relatives were, were, were eaten by us. So. Um, yeah, the, the idea of kind of species naivety is, is one that, that's not really well understood. The focus of your book is is Britain and the lost megafauna. So let's let's do a bit of a, a cast list there. Um, there's uh, a saber-toothed cat that, uh, or a scimitar-toothed cat, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that you, I think you particularly like the yes. homotherium. Yeah, that's and, my favourite. <laughs> uh, why? Why is that the, the one that you go for? Uh, I, I think it's well, it's an under underdog or under cat. Um, essentially, it, it doesn't get as much um, publicity or as much study, really, as the, the kind of better-known species of saber-toothed cat, the, the Smilodon um, from North America. But Homotherium was actually discovered first. It was the first uh, scientifically named uh, saber-toothed cat. It has a really interesting story of the, in the book. I talk about some of the the kind of skullduggery that goes on with the discovery of these um, fossils in Britain, uh, and they're fantastically rare. There's there's very few sites. Um, worldwide where it's found it's much rarer than some of the other species um and it was just an incredible animal i mean when you look at the skeleton it's, it's something that it's you know it's powerful it's it's lithe it, it's graceful um and it's also got a mouthful of teeth like like a great white shark um so it would have been deadly as well there used to be cave lions in in britain uh, and you you you've described it as the most successful land mammal before us so they were everywhere mm. uh, how how different were they from from the lions that we still have um you would have still recognized them i mean the cave lions are one of the species that i've spent um probably the majority of my kind of professional life working in were they bigger they were bigger yeah absolutely bigger um they were kind of uh I think you would have. You, they were still within the kind of 
range of what a big African lion would look like uh, now. But I mean, we, we have, luckily, for cave lions, quite a, a large number of, of images of them painted on walls of places like Chauvet Cave in France, um, Lascaux, um, other places. There's, there's some really good carvings from, uh, made from mammoth ivory from some cave sites in Germany as well. And so these have actually given a, a kind of extra layer um, on our understanding of the cave lion. So we have the bones. I've, I've worked on some of the genetics of them. But we also have the, the kind of cave art from people that saw them, which is the most important thing. These are these are kind of like, um, you know, uh, drawn from life. Pe- people saw these animals and, and pictured them on the walls. So That's right, because all of these animals were encountered by people like us. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you mentioned, uh, well, we also had woolly mammoths and woolly rhinos. Mm-hmm. Uh, rhinos in Britain. Uh, uh, the woolly mammoth, I think you say... Uh, finally died out only two and a half thousand years ago uh two, two and a half thousand years bc so about kind of four or five thousand years ago it died out the last ones so they they were you know later than the pyramids later than stonehenge uh, and they survived on this reasonably small island on the north of siberia um which was kind of slightly isolated at the end of the uh, end of the pleistocene with its own kind of population of mammoths there uh, and then suddenly just after the kind of archaeological evidence for for people arriving on this island Wrangell island and they seem to disappear. That's one of the uh, reasons you don't think that environmental changes are the reason for for extinctions, isn't it? Because occasionally a population would get isolated (laughs) where we couldn't get at them, and and they would survive thousands of years longer than the rest. I mean, I I can't get my head around how what small, non-optimal habitat for mammoths, Wrangell Island, this kind of Arctic, high Arctic island off the north coast of Siberia, why is it that, that this place, separated by only about 80 kilometers from the mainland, has a population of mammoths for 6,000 years after they die out everywhere else um, on the mainland of Eurasia? Um, I mean, the climate is going to be the same. There's only 80 kilometers difference between the mainland and the island. As far as I can see, the only difference is that the mainland has humans during that time period and Wrangell Island doesn't. And then when we have evidence for humans turning up, that's when the Wrangell population disappears. Well, that's a smoking gun, if ever there was one. Uh, what else? We've got uh, Irish elk. We've got bears, of course, uh, the northern lynx. Well, so these are things we've lost. Mm-hmm. We want to ask what is, what's our response going to be. We could just leave it be and say, you know, we're a destructive species and uh, uh, it's all gone. But some people have different ideas. Basically, the three that you suggest, reintroduction, uh, reconstructing an extinct species, and uh, rewilding. Let's Let's consider those and i'm really wondering what you think is the preferable or the the more desirable of of these approaches reintroduction for instance mm-hmm. um that, that has happened beaver yes so the beaver is i would say the success story of um of british conservation for the past you know 20 years um they're back uh, they're back in in scotland england wales uh, and they're successful uh, and not many people are are particularly bothered by the return so you have populations in Argyll in Scotland, you have populations in Tayside, you have uh, kind of Cornish populations and Welsh populations as well. Uh, and, they're, and they're back. They're, they're doing their thing. They're, they're uh, you know, habitat engineers uh, par excellence. They, they, they uh, arrive in, in a place, they, they modify it. And that mo- their modification helps to make the, the area more productive. You have you know, greater diversity of, of uh, insect life within the ponds. Greater diversity in the in the woodland around where where they have their um, where they have their lodges because they they kind of 
do essentially natural coppicing. They're, they're bringing down trees and letting sunlight in to, to uh, encourage competition with other uh, tree species. So they're, they're back. And I think it's a fantastic thing that, that's been done. Um, and hopefully it's just a first step. It's not the end of the line. Well, we we can't reintroduce the woolly mammoth for obvious reasons, but um, how, how desirable is the reintroduction, reintroduction of, uh, say, the lynx or, or wolves? Why not wolves? Well, I mean, wolves is something that's been talked about certainly as long as I've been alive. And, and uh, you know, I'm from uh, the north of Scotland, where essentially that's people people want to bring them back to here. Um, various private landlords have sort of gone some of the way there, but it's something that's been talked about and talked about um, for an awful long time. And there are, you know. There are risks with bringing the wolf back. They're they're not huge risks. People live quite happily side by side with wolves in North America, in in kind of eastern and southern Asia. Uh, but there are risks which which make it kind of a difficult sell to to many people. I think definitely the the next step has to be the lynx. So the, I mean, lynx are incredible. They're they're beautiful. They're secretive. They're shy. They they live very successfully with people. They've been reintroduced into other um, places where they they'd gone extinct before. Um, you know, places like the the uh, Italian Alps, places like um, kind of uh, Eastern European mountain ranges as well, and they can. Th- there's ways. There's there's examples that can be followed for how to do lynx reintroduction successfully in the UK, and I think it would be amazing. I mean, lynx are native. We, we we've only kind of recently in the past sort of 10, 15 years, thanks to work by um, a colleague called Dave Hetherington, uh, discovered that they didn't go extinct at the end of the ice age, which is what some people used to think they actually survived until medieval time period. So, you know, seventh, eighth century AD. Um, and, and that kind of changes their story slightly enough that, that people have to think about reintroducing them. So a seventh, eighth century AD extinction can't be anything to do with climate because the climate then is the same as now. There wasn't anything going on that could have, could have tipped them over the edge, but there is a lot of kind of land use changes there. There's uh, you know, forests being cleared, other kind of things that would have, would have had a big effect on on lynx population. So it, it really it, it places the responsibility back onto us as humans um, to to bring them back into into the UK because we were the ones that got rid of them. And I, I for one, would absolutely love to see it. I, I've I've seen uh, one species of lynx in the wild. I'm reasonably familiar with the uh, Eurasian lynx, the, the species that that we had in the UK, uh, and and they're just incredible incredible animals. We um. Uh, we'd all love to see uh, woolly mammoths, although, of course, <laughs> that's a bit of a Jurassic Park scenario. Uh, reconstructing Oh, this was one of the things that absolutely blew my mind. You mentioned that it's fantastically difficult to artificially inseminate elephants. Yes. Because, I'm going to let you say it, because it's too delicious to steal. Because why? Well, they, I mean, elephants are pregnant for 24 months. They have the kind of longest uh, mammalian pregnancy that we know of. And so they spend a lot of time pregnant and they have a whole bunch of mechanisms. Um, I'm not sure how family friendly the, the podcast is oh, supposed to be. Oh, you can say it. You must okay. say it. You must so say they, it. they have kind of uh, very impermeable hymens, which basically prevent anything getting through. You, you would not be able to transfer an embryo um, through through an elephant hymen. Um, and, you know, sperm barely get through when, when they're, they're supposed to get through naturally. Uh, and, and this is a structure. It's elastic and, it, and it's impermeable. Uh, and it re- regrows. So even after you know a successful pregnancy, if if we found a, a kind of postpartum elephant um, that was that was um, volunteered for for these kind of projects, that uh, the hymen grows back. And and so just getting a, 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 an in vitro uh, embryo 
into an elephant is more or less impossible with current technology. So. See, that, that is something I did not know and will <laughs> never forget. I'm going to trot that out at parties. <laughs> but uh, uh, that, so that's the, the woolly mammoth is probably not much of a prospect. Uh, uh, is it going to ever be possible to reconstruct a, an extinct species from DNA, you know, in a in a <laughs> Jurassic Park way? Well, uh, uh, there, there's a lot of work going on down that kind of road and so uh my friend um professor beth shapiro has written a book called how to clone a mammoth which which talks about some of the the pitfalls of, like elephant hymens and all the other kind of problems that that lie on on the path to cloning uh, a mammoth successfully uh but i think more importantly than that the the kind of questions we need to be asking are you know would it be worth it we, we have a world right now where elephants are in trouble where you know poaching for ivory um you know, landscape destruction, uh, habitat deforestation are, are massive issues. And so we have three species of elephant at the moment, two in Africa and, and one in India, and they're all in trouble. Um, and does it really make sense to bring back mammoths when we can't even live peacefully with elephants? Well, that brings us to the third prospect, rewilding. Um, I, I'm going to make a guess that you're uh, you're quite keen on that one. Yeah, definitely. Um I think that there's places where it's been done and and it seems to be uh, it seems to have interesting effects. So one place where it's happening at the moment, Pleistocene Park, which is this uh, kind of open air lab in uh, northern Siberia where people uh, Sergei Zimov and, and his family have imported megafauna back to what is the currently the Siberian uh, tundra. So they brought in uh, wild horses, um, musk ox. Uh, reindeer, uh, bison as well, and other kind of megafauna as a kind of natural experiment to see whether rewilding can also have an effect on the, the habitat there. And they're finding that it, it can. So they're, they're trying to find surrogates essentially for the woolly mammoths and the woolly rhinos to see if the kind of ecological interactions can be brought back, even if the species can't. Uh, and so they're seeing things like the action of these mega herbivores turning up the, the kind of frozen ground uh, moving dung around, uh, knocking down trees, is, is actually making the, the, the permafrost regions more productive. They're, they're kind of almost moving back towards the mammoth steppe uh, environment as it was then. So I think uh, that, that's kind of one way to look at, at rewilding is the idea of restoring ecological interactions that have lost through extinction. Um, but, you know, it's it, it's uh, it's a tricky one. I mean, there's, there's places where it could work and there's places where it might be more difficult. Ross, that's uh yeah it's a it's a, a, an interesting prospect the book on the other hand um is just a delight i, I really enjoyed oh, it uh, I, there was so much to uh to to find out and to to learn and um it's it's a, it's one of those puppyish books that goes oh let me tell you something on on every page um so thank you very much thank you. the uh book is the Missing Links, The Past and Future of Britain's Lost Mammals. It's by Ross Barnett, published by Bloomsbury at 16.99, and I can't recommend it too highly. Ross, thank you very much. Thank you. That was The Books Podcast, presented by Tim Haig. The Books Podcast is a Green Shoot production. More details can be found at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be reached on tim at green-shoot.com.